0: Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend is producing today's program, Clark Hilton Engineering. Today we're going to talk with Thomas Terry. He's the co-author of Images and Idols, Creativity for the Christian Life. He co-authors with J. Ryan Lister, but we'll talk with Thomas Terry. He's coming up in this first hour. And then in the second hour of today's program, we're going to talk with Will Graham. He's the grandson of Billy Graham, the evangelist, now deceased. He's uh, His first book released uh, on the anniversary of his grandfather's, what would have been his 100th birthday. The book is titled, and it's a devotional, Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul. We'll talk with him about that, the life and legacy of his grandfather, as well as his father, and the work that God has called him to. And one of the things I'm interested in talking to him about is uh, the the pressure of living under that kind of legacy and how as an individual before God does he navigate his Christian life so we'll talk with Will Graham about that in the five o'clock hour first to look at some of the day's uh, developing news Kamala Harris uh, came after uh, is coming after the private health care plans that are currently Uh, Quite common across the country. She's a Democratic 2020 presidential hopeful uh, out of California. She raised eyebrows uh, yesterday at a town hall when she vowed to eliminate all private health care insurance for approximately 150 million Americans. If she's elected president, well, asked by CNN host Jake Tapper if people who like their current health care insurance could keep it under her Medicare for all plan. Harris said, indicating that um, they could not, but that in turn, they would experience health care without any delays. Her statements appear to be a full throated call for single payer health insurance, which is what Obama wanted, but was not prepared at that juncture to call for as opposed to merely expanding Medicare and a dramatic um, embrace of the kind of proposal advocated by Vermont independent Senator Bernie. Sanders. Also, um, Roger Stone. Well, Mueller wants to silence me, he says. In an exclusive interview with Sean Hannity, embattled former Trump advisor, Roger Stone said special counsel Robert Mueller's indictment was meant to silence him for his support for President Trump. Not that he was particularly irrelevant. Um, voice uh, on his presidency, but Stone also believes Mueller's indictment was part of a larger plan to charge both Trump and the vice president with Russian collusion and get them out of office. Look, he says, and I'm quoting, I honestly believe that they're going to try to charge the president and the vice president with some hopped up frame of Russian collusion. Stone was speaking on Monday night on Hannity. That way they can make House Speaker Nancy Pelosi president. She can make Hillary Clinton vice president and then step aside. It's a nightmare. But I think that's what they have in mind. Hmm. Well, Stone's allegations come as acting attorney general Matthew Whitaker announced that Mueller's Russian investigation is close to being completed. Well, there's some dispute about that. In fact, Stone has insisted on a trial and that could take up to a year, which means, well, Mueller will be around for at least that length of time. Stone was taken into custody last Friday, indicted on charges of obstruction, making false statements and witness tampering. He will uh, be arraigned, or rather he was arraigned today. Now, interestingly, this doesn't go to the question of collusion. These are crimes essentially against the investigation, against Mueller. Uh, They're process crimes rather than uh, crimes that point to collusion. Now, that doesn't mean that they don't have anything pointing to it. But thus far, all of the indictments and charges that have been levied against associates of the Trump campaign or Trump himself have been related to the, uh, uh, the investigation rather than the charges. They, they postdate the charges um, that were levied. So we'll keep an eye open. And whether or not, as the um, incoming attorney general suggests, the uh, Mueller investigation is winding down, Again, we'll just have to wait and see. The Mueller team has been very close-lipped about uh, what, uh, what's happening and what's likely to happen next. Meanwhile, National Security Advisor John Bolton may have inadvertently revealed a potential next move by the Trump administration in the Venezuela crisis when photographers captured a note on a legal pad that read, 5,000 troops to Colombia. Now, what did that mean? Not altogether clear. Was he making an historical note? Was he suggesting what was going to happen tomorrow? We don't know. Bolton was holding the legal pad in full view of the White House press corps while he and the Treasury Secretary, Steve Mnuchin, announced the imposition of sanctions on Venezuela's state-owned oil company, PDVSA. Was this a calculated move to... Suggest that possibility and put the fear of God in the heart of Maduro? We don't really know. Well, move uh, aimed at increasing the pressure on disputed presidential Nicolas Maduro to step aside in favor of opposition leader Juan uh, Guido is um, the the issue at. In question, rather. Sources say that the White House is considering pre-positioning U.S. forces in Venezuela's western neighbor in case they're needed. However, the sources said that no such move is imminent. The National Security Council declined to comment on the note while the Pentagon referred questions to Bolton himself. Imagine that going to the source. Well, China's government is calling for Washington to stop the unreasonable crackdown on uh, Huey after the Justice Department on Monday charged the tech giant with 13 felonies, including fraud. The 13-count indictment against the company, the world's biggest supplier of network gear used by phone and Internet companies, was unsealed yesterday in New York. It charged that the company's two of its affiliates and top executives at the company – um, uh, Meng Wang Zhao, who was arrested in Canada last month and is facing extradition to the U.S. A formal extradition request is expected to be filed today, according to Acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker. Well, the charges include bank fraud, conspiracy to commit wire fraud and violating the International Emergency Economic Powers Act. A separate case filed in Washington state charges uh, the company with stealing trade secrets from T-Mobile. The indictments come as a trade war as rather trade war talks between China and the U.S. are scheduled for this week. And five police officers are on the mend. Five Houston police officers were shot on Monday while serving a search warrant at the home of suspected drug dealers. Two suspects were shot and killed in the exchange with police. Two officers remain in critical condition at Memorial Hermann, Texas Medical Center in Houston with gunshot wounds to the neck. Uh, Two other officers remain hospitalized in good condition. The fifth officer was released last night after being treated for a gunshot wound to the shoulder. Among those officers, uh, one has been shot previously twice in the line of duty. And on this day in 2002, in the first State of the Union address, President George W. Bush says terrorists are still threatening America. And he warns of an axis of evil consisting of North Korea, Iran and Iraq. And on this day in 1998, the bomb rocks an abortion clinic, or A-bomb, in Birmingham, Alabama, killing security guard Robert Sanderson and critically injuring nurse Emily Lyons. The bomber, Eric Rudolph, would not be captured until May of 2003. He is serving a life sentence. And on this day in 1936, the first inductees of Baseball's Hall of Fame, including Ty Cobb and Babe Ruth, are named in Cooperstown, New York. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: 20 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Thomas Terry, co-author of Images and Idols, Creativity for the Christian Life. And in the 5 o'clock hour, we'll talk with Will Graham, grandson of Billy Graham, his first book, a devotional, Redeemed Devotions for the Longing Soul. Well, the five-week partial government shutdown that ended on Friday cost the U.S. economy $3 billion. It will likely never recover. That's according to a Monday report by the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. Now, that has been disputed, but that's what they're reporting. According to the CBO's report, the economy lost $11 billion during the shutdown, which began just before Christmas, but will gain back $8 billion now that the government has reopened, at least temporarily. And although most of the real GDP lost during the fourth quarter of 2018 and the first quarter of 2019 will eventually be recovered, CBO estimates that estimates rather that uh, about three billion dollars will not that 's according to the CBO Director Keith Hall speaking uh, in a statement on monday the thirty five day shutdown, which broke the record for the longest the federal government has ever been closed, was the result of stalled negotiations between Republicans and Democrats over the president 's demand for a five point seven billion dollar wall construction. On the southern border, about 800,000 federal workers were furloughed or forced to work without pay as it unfolded. Underlying those effects on the overall economy, the CBO reports, are much more significant effects on individual businesses and workers. Among those who experience the largest and most direct negative effects are federal workers who face delayed compensation and private sector entities that lost business. Some of those private sector entities will never recoup that lost income, they speculated. And during a um, press conference on Monday, Acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker said that Special Counsel Robert Mueller's investigation into Russian interference in the 2016 election is coming to an end. The investigation is, I think, and there's a big underline in bold, I think. um, The investigation is close to being completed, and I hope that we can get the report from Director Mueller as soon as possible. I've um, been fully briefed, and I look forward to Mueller delivering the final report. Right now, the investigation is close to being completed. Fundamentally, the Mueller investigation has a very defined scope. Well, uh, that's a speculation on the part of Acting Attorney General Matthew Whitaker that has not been confirmed or denied by the Mueller investigation. But there's been a lot of speculation about what's happening and when the next thing will happen. We'll just have to, like everybody else, wait and see. Well, Speaker Nancy Pelosi, in a letter Monday to the president... Um, indicated he could give his annual State of the Union address in the House chamber on the 5th of February, shortly after lawmakers and the White House reached an agreement to end the partial government shutdown. When I wrote to you in January, the 23rd, to be more precise, I stated that we should work together to find a mutually agreeable date when government has reopened to schedule this year's State of the Union address. Therefore, I invite you to deliver your State of the Union address before a joint session of Congress on February 5th, 2019, in the House chamber president formally accepted the invitation later in the day. It is my great honor to accept, he wrote in his response. We have a great story to tell and yet great goals to achieve. While well, the California Democrat previously retracted the president's invitation to come to the Capitol on Tuesday, arguing the speech should not be held until after the end of the partial government shutdown, which was, of course, preceded by the president uh, withdrawing um, access to military transport for the speaker and other Uh, delegates from the U.S. House to travel abroad, which, of course, is part of this back and forth we've been witnessing for the last several weeks. Well, Stacey Abrams, the former Georgia gubernatorial candidate and a rising star among Democrats, will deliver her party's response to the president's State of the Union address next week. Senate Minority Leader Chuck Schumer announced uh, today Abrams, who hoped to make history as the first black governor of Georgia and first female black governor of any state, lost November's gubernatorial election to Georgia's Republican Secretary of State Brian Kemp, but her stock within the Democratic Party has remained high. An attorney, she uh, was rather the first black leader in the Georgia state house. Having previously served as the minority leader, she is also an award-winning romance novelist, penning eight books under the the, uh, uh, nom de plume Selena Montgomery. Well, the news of Abrams' response comes a day after the president accepted Nancy Pelosi's invitation to deliver the State of the Union address. I'm not sure if this is the first time a non-sitting member of Congress is delivering that response, but uh, she will speak on behalf of Democrats. A key committee in the Democrat-controlled House of Representatives is moving to eliminate the God reference from the oath administered to witnesses testifying before the panel as part of a new rules package expected to be approved this week, according to a draft obtained exclusively by Fox News. The draft shows that the House Committee on Natural Resources would ask witnesses to recite only, do you solemnly swear or affirm, under penalty of law, that the testimony that you are about to give is the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. The rules proposal... Places the words, so help me God, in red brackets, indicating they are slated to be cut. The draft rules also remove the phrase his or her throughout the document, changing those two pronouns to their. Uh, The rules additionally modify all references to the committee chairman uh, to instead refer only to the committee's chair. Other rules changes uh, relate to expanding the committee's authority over natural gas in Alaska and fossil fuel resources. While many federal oaths include the phrase, so help me God, some, most notably the presidential oath of office, do not. The full committee is set to vote on the new language this week, and the rules would take effect immediately if adopted. Other committees were still in the process of finalizing their rules as of Monday. We'll see what happens next. Well, the president of the Houston Police Officers Union on Monday tore into those targeting law enforcement officers hours after shooting uh, left five officers injured. Joe um, Germaldi, the union president, gave an impassioned statement after the incident saying enough is enough. Two suspects also were killed in that incident. Now, I want to speak on behalf of the 5,200 brave men and women who work in the Houston Police Department and the other 800,000 police officers who are working these streets every single day, are putting their lives on the line, Grimaldi. Uh, said, we are sick and tired of having targets on our backs. We are sick and tired of having dirt bags trying to take our lives when all we're trying to do is to protect this community and protect our families. Enough is enough, end quote. He also had a message for those calling police officers the enemy. And for the ones who are out there spreading the rhetoric that police officers are the enemy, well, just know, That we've uh, all got your number now and we're going to uh, be keeping track of all of uh, all y'all, as he said, and we're going to be making sure um, uh, that we're going to be holding you accountable every time you stir the pot on our police officers. He said he was rather impassioned. And again, four officers were shot and wounded. Fortunately, all uh, survived um, one having already been released from um, uh, from custody. Well, the United States Postal Service is considering selling access to your mailbox. That's gotten that desperate, and maybe this is the right thing for the 21st century. Bulls and bears um, are going back and forth on what's best for the U.S. Postal Service, and they've raised the price of their forever stamp by five cents to 55 cents. That's a 10 percent increase in record um, nominal price adjustment. The agency also announced other price increases, uh, said it received approval for the hike in November. The price to ship a small flat rate box was raised to $7.90 from $7.20, while the large flat rate box was raised by more than $1 to 1995. Priority mail express prices rose by 3.9%, while priority mail increased 5.9%. Those prices aren't adjusted in line with inflation, but rather with perceived market conditions. First-class mail prices rose by 10%. Well, the hikes come as the post office... um, Rather, the Postal Service recorded a net loss of $3.9 billion during fiscal 2018, which is an increase of more than $1 billion over the losses it suffered the previous year. Overall, volume declined by 3.2 billion pieces, which includes a 3.6% decline in first-class mail volume, its main source of revenue. The Postal Service was unable to pay the $6.9 billion it owed the federal government to um, pre-fund pensions and health benefits for workers, as has, the, uh, has been the case for several years. It has more than $120 billion in debts and unfunded liabilities. The last time the agency recorded a profit was more than a decade ago. The White House said the service has lost some $65 billion since the financial crisis. Meanwhile, the Trump administration has put pressure on the mail service to address its financial woes. The president has personally lashed out at the courier on a number of occasions, specifically over a shipping deal it cut with e-commerce giant Amazon. The Postal Service also faces mounting competition from... Companies like Amazon developing their own delivery services, as well as from FedEx and UPS, and the call for the privatization of the uh, Postal Service. Well, in December, the administration released a list of proposed reforms to help the Postal Service restructure its ailing business model, including selling the rights to mailboxes to private companies. Another suggested reform involved introducing a new pricing model that eliminates across-the-board price caps and charging market-based prices for some mail and package items which could result in higher package delivery costs and, uh, well, an appeal of FedEx and UPS. The shipping and packages segment was actually a bright spot for the courier service during fiscal 2018, where revenue climbed by $2 billion, or 10%. So we'll see what happens with the old post office. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, we'll talk with Thomas Terry. He's the co-author of Images and Idols, Creativity for the Christian Life. He co authored with J. Ryan Lister. That's coming up next, right here on The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, what does God have to do with your creativity? And what does your creativity have to do with God? Well, these are the questions that Thomas Terry and Ryan Lister sought to answer in their new book, Images and Idols. It's not a how-to book full of strategies, tips, or even tricks on how to be more creative. Instead, it's a book that digs into the heart of creativity, the purpose of it, and how it gives purpose to the creator as well, the person who creates that art. Um, They write and craft and build and design and compose. For what? Well, this is a question for those who want to understand the why of creativity. Uh, If you want to understand our creativity, we must begin with God, they say in the book. Well, whether um, it's art, design, music, architecture, writing, or anything else— This book will move readers to invest deeply in creative work because God put the desire and the ability in us and because it shares God with the world, and it will pull the reader away from idolizing creativity. Again, the book is titled Images and Idols, Creativity for the Christian Life, co-authored by Thomas Terry and J. Ryan Lister. Now, my guest is Thomas Terry. He is the executive director and founder of The Humble Beast, a collective of rap and hip-hop artists. Terry is a member of the Beautiful Eulogy, an exceptional hip-hop group from right here in Portland. He's also an elder at Trinity Church of Portland and co-creator of Canvas, a conference on theology and creativity. He joins us today to talk about creativity and what it has to do with God and um, the converse as well. Thank you so much for joining us.
2: Oh, thank you. For, thank you so much for having me. I appreciate you letting me on.
1: Absolutely. Well, this is an interesting approach to a subject that has occurred to most creative people at some point, but perhaps, um, weren't altogether clear. Where do I, where do I go with this?
2: Yeah, well, we, I can kind of give you the, the start of, of why we thought yeah. it was an important subject to deal with. So I come from uh, a long line of creatives. So, um, uh, I, I came from a culture that was deeply embedded and rooted in hip-hop culture. Uh, and so all we knew and all we breathed was creativity. Uh, it was how we expressed ourselves. It was how we uh, related with one another. Uh, and then I uh, around the age of 18, I became a Christian, and I really felt like there was a lot of uh, discontinuity between my creativity and my creator. Uh, and, and my church didn't really quite know what to do with me. They didn't know how to file me. Uh, they didn't understand me. I was one of those weird, uh, creative people, uh, so they just didn't understand me. And because they didn't understand me, I didn't really quite fit in within the church context. And so, it just was this uh, tension for, for me as a Christian uh, and, a, and a creative living in a very linear and uh, you know black and white world. Uh, and so, as I began to grow in my faith and, and began to understand my role as a as a Christian and my identity became more rooted in my Christian experience and less in my artistic and creative experience, I began to see a lot of other folks like me who were wrestling with the same issues. Uh, And so we were able to look at the culture and see how young creatives wrestle with identity, how they work for identity, uh, how they build everything for their self, and how they uh, use creativity as the sole means of, uh, you know, expressing themselves, and so we decided, uh, both Ryan and I, that we we felt it was important to address them where they were. Uh, and so, one one of the aspects of my uh, of my music life was in a, in a group called Beautiful Eulogy, and we mm-hmm. would travel the country and we'd see all of these young creative Christians who were really wrestling with the tension of creativity and theology. They just could not reconcile it. And so Ryan as a systematic. Theology professor uh, and and I was a performer, so we got the performer and the professor in one room and tried to figure out a way that we might be able to uh, communicate effectively to a culture that so desperately needs to know how to reconcile your creativity and theology.
1: What a great collaboration. Do you think this tension is relatively recent, or has this always been a strain within Christianity where there's been a very narrow definition of what 's acceptable in terms of creativity? Um, what, what's your thought on whether or not this is more recent than one might think?
2: Well, I think if you were going to go all the way back, um, if you moved yourself back into the Renaissance era, I don't think that that was really an issue. I think that there was a time in, in the culture where art and creativity w- was completely compatible with robust theology, I would say sometime like maybe in the 80s, 70s and the 80s, I I began to see, you know, even as a young person, this kind of sacred and secular divide. Mm -hmm. Uh, And so because art and creativity uh, is not typically filed in the category of absolutes, uh, it's considered taboo. Anything that is relative is just kind of put off or anything that is abstract is, is put away as secular. And so what you really saw was uh, the Christian culture gravitate more towards things that were didactic and less about things that were beautiful. And so I think that for the last 20, 30 years, there has been this massive divide. Uh, And it's been happening for so long that people just don't even think about creativity Mm -hmm. and and Christianity. They're just in totally different sects of life.
1: The first chapter of your book is titled The Creator of Creativity, which gives us the context in which to better understand the creative impulse. Uh, talk a little bit about what God has to do with our creativity.
2: Well, yeah, if you go back in the very beginning, when God created all things, after everything he created, uh, he He said it was good. Uh, and, you know, then he created Um, man and woman and after that he said it was very good and and really what you get is a sense of God who created finding pleasure and delight and satisfaction in that which he created so you see that one of these attributes one of these qualities of God is creative he speaks and things come into existence uh, and, and in many ways creatives have been trying to follow that pattern ever since and so, what we wanted to do is help the creative think and know. Creati- creativity is not something new. It is not something mm-hmm. that is detached from the, from God. He is a designer. He is creative. He speaks, and colors and textures uh, come out of nothing. And and I think that a lot of creatives don't think in those categories. They think of God in terms of morals only, right and wrong, absolutes only. Uh, and so we wanted to start at the very beginning and put on display the beauty of God's creation uh, through the grid of God, the the divine Creator, and that help that would help to center people on who is this God and how does He work. Uh, so that's where we started.
1: From there, the you go beginning. to who God is and how He works, to how He uh, put that creative impulse because we are created in His image into us, and how that expression is. Uh, an act of worship and a reflection of who he is and a a communication of of God into the culture or into the world.
2: Yeah, and and to center the creative, to help them understand that all creativity is derivative. It all comes from God. We create. See, God creates out of nothing, but we create out of something. Uh, God has to give us all of the resources, the mind and the fingers and the hands and and the vision uh, to even create. So we wanted to put that in its proper context and say that your art is derivative, and that is humbling. That humbles us. That puts us in our appropriate place to say that we create with the resources that God gave us, and we are accountable to God. So when we create, we not only create with the resources that He gives us, but we create for the purpose of worship.
1: Now, was all creativity created equal uh, in that it has value in terms of an expression of worship? Or are there categories in which we might put creativity? Some things are a reflection of worship, other things less so. Is it possible for creativity to be um, uh, corrupted or um, to somehow miss the uh, the reflection of God in its expression? That was well, sure. artfully put, but...
2: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, I think in, for the Christian... I think that every act of creativity can be worshiped,
1: mm-hmm.
2: but I think that's largely dependent on the posture of the heart. So you can even create things that the world would view as, I don't know, secular or, or, uh, you know, irreligious. So you can paint a picture of a tree, uh, in all of its complexities and get all of the textures right, uh, and still do that from a posture of worship if your heart is right, if you're finding satisfaction in your work, if you recognize, even as you approach your art, that it is God-given. and So there's there's a sense of owing or or nodding to God in your creative work. So I think all of that could be worship. And I think with the non-Christian, I think they too create from a posture of worship. I just think that their worship is misguided. Mm -hmm. Uh, So their worship might be worship for themselves. They might be creative, creating things to put themselves in the public sphere to receive praise for themselves. Or they might be creating uh, to worship uh, you know, all kinds of things in their life. I, I think we are made to worship. We are creatures of worship, but we don't always worship rightly. I think the Christian can do it rightly. I think the non Christian will continue to pursue to try to find satisfaction in what he creates until he lands at the place of appropriate worship with his work.
1: We're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. We're talking this afternoon with Thomas Terry, who, along with uh, J. Ryan Lister, authored the book Images and Idols, Creativity for the Christian Life. It's uh, part of the Reclaiming uh, Creativity series. We'll talk more about that in just a few moments.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm talking with Thomas Terry. He's the founder and executive director of Humble Beast. record label and ministry here in Portland. As a spoken word artist and a member of Beautiful Eulogy, he seeks to bring creativity and theology together to glorify the Lord who created them both. He lives uh, here in the Portland area with his wife and two boys, and uh, just delighted to, and I should mention, he's also executive pastor at Trinity Church here in Portland. He co-authored the book with uh, Professor J. Ryan Lister, who is a professor of theology at Western Seminary here in Portland. He's the author of The Presence of God, Its Place in the Story of Scripture, and the story of our lives and serves as director of uh, doctrine and discipleship for humble beast, where he helped start the uh, canvas conference. He lives here in Portland as well with his family, uh, wife and four children. We're talking about the book. They co-authored, images and idols, creativity for the Christian life. It is a part of the uh, a reclaiming creativity series. Now as a series of books, what do you aim to contribute to creatives in, um, in the Christian church? to help them see their place in it and uh, the role that God is calling to them to and the value of creativity?
2: Well, we, we wanted to give people a foundation or a framework uh, to build upon. So the first book, Images and Idols, in the series is helping them to have a theology of creativity. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the second book that we're working on is um, called Redesign Cathedrals. And really, the the desire in that book is to help reconcile the church and creatives. Uh, we've seen over and over how the church finds it really difficult to relate with creatives. Um, the church sometimes doesn't understand or know how to use their creative gifts. And we've also seen how the creative feels about the church. Many creatives feel like the church exploits the creative, uh, how the church only uses them for their creative contributions. And so, what we wanted to do is create a resource that would help Christians, uh, well, creative Christians, understand their role and their and their work in the local church, and then also help the church to understand and value the creative in their place. A lot of creatives tend to find their identity only in their work, and so the the church would do really well to view the creative as a whole, not just a creative, but a whole. And so we want to help the creative think about themselves in that category and how they might be able to serve the church in other ways other than their creative gifts, but also with their creativity. So that's the the aim of the second book. We want to help develop mature, creative Christians. And then the third book will be uh, the book on how to use creativity to engage culture. Um, The world that we live in uh, views beauty as the new apologetic, and so we want to help equip the creative to use their God-given creativity uh, to engage the world with truth, but also with beauty. Uh, and so that, that's our aim in this series, is really to disciple creatives holistically, give them a theological framework, help them find their place within the church, and help them as they engage culture. Uh, all for the glory of God and for the good of people.
1: But you mentioned that oftentimes creatives feel that the church exploits them for the creativity that they bring to it. Is that is the converse also true, that sometimes creatives um, exploit opportunities that only the church provides? Is there a misunderstanding that that crosses um, both, both sides, oh, if you absolutely.
2: will? Absolutely. I think what you have between uh, the church and the creative is 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 more like a marriage, uh, a marriage with a lot of communication issues. And mm-hmm. so we our desire is to step in and be a marriage counselor and say uh, to the church, here is how your creatives feel within the church. And then also to explain to the creatives, this is how the church interprets what you say about her. Uh, so I think both bring some unique um, perspective to the table. But when they're not speaking each other's language and they're not meeting each other's needs, just things go all. It just goes all wrong. So we want to mediate that conversation.
1: That's wonderful. Now it's probably easier to envision musicians in the church. There's a place for musicians to uh, use their creative capacity within the church. What are some of the challenges with uh, with artists and uh, creatives whose um, creativity falls outside what traditionally has been. Uh, shared from the platform in worship and in other contexts in the church?
2: Well, what you have in the church is a collective of redeemed people uh, who were given gifts by God to serve those very people. And so I think what hap- what has to happen first is the leadership of the church, uh, the pastors and the elders need to find uh, and create space for people to just use their gifts, uh, and so, what you have is uh, only musicians feel like they have a place in the church because it's the only thing that people uh, put an emphasis on. But I think there's a multiplicity of ways for creatives to use their gifts to serve people. Um, and, and so, I, 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 and I don't think that creativity is limited only to uh, you know music and and design. Um, you know, there there is beauty and creativity when it comes to. Uh, you know, interior design, uh, or when it comes to, you know, even so far as plumbing, you know, you have all of these people using their unique gifts in a very creative way for the benefit of the church. But I do think it it starts with the church providing uh, a healthy framework for people to use their gifts, whether they be creative or Mm non-creative. We have to understand that everything that we do in terms of our gifts is for the benefit of other people. And when you think about it that way, um, it it actually opens things up into a way wider sphere to use your creative gifts.
1: You know, that's such an important uh, idea because many believers uh, feel that they are spectators in what's happening, but they're not participants in the body of Christ functioning as a community and a family. There's no role for them to somehow plug in and use the considerable gifts that God has given each of us, whether it's creative or in some other way. How can the body of Christ reflect all that God has made each of us as individuals and collectively as a community. And that I think is a real challenge in in the church. I think it probably um, predates the 21st century, but it certainly is a challenge today.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely.
1: You wrote about the creativity of Christ and that um, it's an unusual connection. Why is it important for people invested in creative work to understand the creativity of Christ? How does that help us as members of his body?
2: Well, I think if you begin to understand the nature and character of Christ, you not only see how he works uh, and how he loves and how he does things, which, which helps you to model him, but you also get a, a holistic picture of who he is. And I think by spending a, a concentrated amount of time to understand him as a creative God, Uh, the way he creatively loves people, the way he spoke, the way he used parables. I think what that does is it brings into the church this idea that God was creative and you can be creative. I mean, we learn from Jesus how to love people by virtue of looking at the life and character of Jesus. We learn how to be righteous by looking at the character and qualities of Jesus Christ. If we look at Christ uh, and see his creativity at work, we can also model that creativity in a healthy way so it's not something that's super strange or super foreign the more we are made in christ's image the more we will look look like him but we can only begin to look like him if we study him rightly and so i think it's 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 vital for the christian to flourish uh to understand the totality of christ not just these small little compartments of Mm -hmm. christ um, but that's, I think that's what a lot of creatives do, is they relegate Christ and his work to the religious aspects of life, but not in the creative aspects of life. And so it's, it's super important for the creative to know that.
1: I love the quote on the back uh, of your book, God is reclaiming creativity for his glory and our good. And we would do well to consider all that he has in mind for us. You can certainly begin with the book, Images and Idols, Creativity for the Christian Life, part of the Reclaiming Creativity series. What's the timeline on the additional volumes in this series?
2: So we are in the process of writing the second book now, which mm-hmm. should launch early 2020. Uh, and then the next one, we're still figuring that out with Moody. So.
1: <laughs> now, do you see this as uh, an individual read, or as, would this book be useful in a group of creatives, uh, leadership in the church, sort of thinking through how um uh, Our creativity can better uh, can better be reflected within the context of Christian community,
2: yeah, well, when we wrote the book, our aim was to help uh, creatives connect with their creative groups in their church, and so that 's the whole the, this whole book is written for that purpose. We really wanted to be a discipleship manual for creatives, and so if you 're a pastor uh, you 're a small group leader and you have a bunch of creatives in your church, and you struggle with how to help them theologically and and creatively grow as a Christian, this book is a great resource for that. I mean, that's why we wrote it. You'll benefit by reading it as an individual, but you'll really flourish in the context of reading this book in community.
1: I would agree. Hey, thank you so much for talking with us today.
2: Absolutely. Thank you for having me.
1: Appreciate it. Images and Idols, Creativity for the Christian Life. The book is published by Moody. News and traffic up next. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of The Georgine Rice Show. Six minutes after five o'clock, Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. Coming up this hour, we're going to talk with Will Graham. He is the grandson of Billy Graham and the son of Franklin Graham. His first book, Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul. He'll be joining us uh, later this hour. The book is uh, beautifully done, but in addition to the devotion that always starts with Scripture, he includes some anecdotes about his uh, growing up a Graham, uh, pictures of his father, his grandfather, other family members, and influential people in the faith. So you'll find it a very uh, warm um, devotional. Uh, The governor of Washington has declared a state public health emergency after more than two dozen measles cases have been reported. That number has increased by now. It's over 30, primarily affecting small children. Governor Jay Inslee said in a statement that the Washington State Military Department and State Emergency Operations Center will be working with the Department of Health to combat the overwhelming influx of measles cases, of which there have been 32 as of Saturday, according to the Department of Health. Uh, those infected are primarily isolated to Clark County in southwest Washington, which directly borders Portland, Oregon. One case is now reportedly spread to King County, which includes Seattle, Washington. Well, county officials reveal that people may have been exposed in at least one instance when an infected person attended a Portland Trailblazers home game. Other contagious people also visited the Portland International Airport, as well as hospitals, schools, churches and other busy public places. Um, uh, Inslee previously issued a local public health emergency in Clark County last week, but now extends it to the entire state of Washington. The measles virus is a highly contagious infectious disease that can be fatal in small children. And the existence of 26 confirmed cases in the state of Washington creates an extreme public health risk that may quickly spread to other uh, counties. Uh, he said last week. Well, health officials have said 21 of the reported measles cases have affected children between the ages of one and 10, though the measles uh, MMR vaccine has been highly effective since it was first widely distributed here in the U.S. in 1968. There's been a rising trend of parents deciding against vaccinating their children for a variety of reasons. According to an October report by the CDC, 2018 was the third consecutive year in which numbers of children entering school with uh, vaccine exemptions rose. Data from the National Immunization Survey also revealed that the number of children reaching age 2 without having received any vaccinations has increased gradually from 0.9% for children born in 2011 to 1.3% for children born in 2015. These rates are of non-vaccination are particularly high in the state of Oregon, which is worrisome considering the close proximity to the outbreak in nearby Clark County, Washington. Well, vaccine exemptions in Oregon increased from 1% in 2000 to 7.5%. In the 2016 2017 school year, according to PBS, primarily affecting small children. Well, the virus is something not to be taken lightly, according to Peter J. Hodis, a vaccin- uh, vaccinologist at Baylor College of Medicine, uh, speaking um, uh, to reporters before we started vaccinating against measles. Measles was the single leading killer of children in the world he said, putting it into a broader context. So what do you need to know? Well, the number of confirmed measles cases is growing by the day in Clark County. Uh, There is currently 35 confirmed cases of measles, 11 uh, more suspected cases. As I mentioned, Governor Inslee declared a state of emergency in Washington. In addition to the dozens in Clark County, Seattle, Um, area has uh, a man in that area recently visited southwest Washington. He has measles. The outbreak has also spread to Oregon, where one Multnomah County resident has measles, and officials say the case is linked to the Washington outbreak. People with the disease may be exposed to Uh, To others at health clinics, schools, restaurants, other locations, including OMSI, Portland International Airport and the Moda Center, as the number of cases continues to rise there. Some of the questions um, that are being asked, how do you get measles? Well, it's a highly contagious and potentially deadly illness. People with measles can spread the virus before they show symptoms. It's spread through the air when a person with measles coughs or sneezes, according to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. The people at the highest risk are those who haven't been vaccinated, pregnant, women infants 12 months or younger too young for a vaccination uh, or people with weakened immune systems well what are the symptoms measles symptoms symptoms rather begin with a fever cough runny nose red eyes followed by a rash that usually begins uh, at the head and spreads to the rest of the body according to health officials the illness can last up to three weeks so what should you do if you think you might have it Health officials say that you should call your doctor immediately and explain what symptoms you have. You should not go to the doctor without calling first, because if you do have it, you don't want to spread it in the doctor's office. Health officials warn you could infect other people um, in the office or at a hospital. So uh, why do some parents decide not to vaccine, vaccinate their kids? Well, this is a long-standing debate, but at least 30 of the people who've contracted measles in Clark County were not immunized. That's according to Washington health officials, and the majority of cases are children. In Washington, vaccinations are required for school-age children, but state law allows parents to opt their children out of vaccines vaccines rather for personal, religious, or medical reasons. Dr. Alan uh, Melnick, a health officer for Cla- Clark Cowlitz uh, Skamania and... Other counties in Washington say the majority of the exemptions uh, to vaccines he sees are not related to religious or medical reasons. They're philosophical or personal. Uh, What keeps me uh, up at night, he says, is uh, eventually having a child die from this completely preventable situation. With a growing outbreak, uh, Washington lawmakers introduced a bill that would ban personal exemptions for measles, mumps and rubella uh, the vaccine. Vaccine resistance is one of the top 10 threats to global health in 2019, according to the World Health Organization. Well, how effective is the measles vaccination? You might wonder if it's uh, mandatory. Well, according to the CDC, one dose of the measles vaccine is 93% effective, two doses, 97% effective. And is it possible to get the measles if you've been vaccinated? Well, the answer, quite frankly, is yes, but it's very unlikely. The CDC says about 3% of people who've been vaccinated will still get measles if they're exposed. The good news is that vaccinated people are more likely to have a milder uh, case. If if they contact measles, they're uh, also less likely to spread the disease to other people. So if I've had the vaccine, can I get the measles? Well, the answer is yes and no, as I've just explained, but generally it's no. If you had the first measles shot, you're 93 to 95% immune. If you had both shots, you're 95 to 100% immune. And they say, don't worry, you're safe, even around infected people, even going to a listed exposure site, same with your kids. So You can interpret that how you will. If you've had the measles, can you have it again? And the answer is no. If you know you had a a real case of the measles, you are now immune for life. No chance. Uh, It's one and done. Uh, If you were uh, vaccinated decades ago, are you still good? Well, the answer is yes. Once you've had the vaccine, you're good to go you won't get it if you're really worried about it you can uh, get a new measles mumps rubella shot there's no harm in getting a new one but they say it's not necessary i'm not sure i was vac- i was uh, vaccinated what should i do well you can get a new mu- uh, measles mumps rubella vaccine or shot uh, there's no harm again in uh, having another any doctor's office or pharmacy can give that to you. It's never too late. How at risk are babies younger than one who can't get the vaccine yet? Well, they say you need to be careful. Exposing them to large crowds or very busy places um, is uh, where they're most vulnerable. But because measles is so rare, it's likely they'll be fine. They can get their first shot at age one. Uh, You can get them the shot earlier at six months. If you're traveling or you're really concerned about it, then they'll still need uh, that 12-month shot and the second one at four to six years old. And how soon after the shot are you immune about two weeks. So you have the shot. Two weeks. Um, let's see. Is it safe to go to the locations on the exposure list and you can find those published online? The answer is yes. The dates and times uh, have long passed that the um, and the measles are not still in the air uh, for those exposure sites where they believe uh, individuals with the, uh, the disease uh, were Now, what's deadlier, the flu or the measles? Not that I guess it really matters, but the flu. In 2017, the CDC said 80,000 Americans died of the flu in the past 18 years. 11 people have died of measles. The measles is uh, a one-time vaccine for life. The flu requires a yearly vaccine that isn't perfect. Of the 36 confirmed cases in Clark County, 25 cases were found among children 1 to 10 years old. 10 cases were found among children 11 to 18. One case was found among adults 19 to 29. Of the people found with the virus, 32 were unvaccinated. It's unclear whether the other four were vaccinated or not. So there you have it. Go and be wise. Up next, we'll talk with Will Graham, the book Redeemed Devotions for the Longing Soul.
0: You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast, it is aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: Well, good afternoon, and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Will William, or Will Franklin Graham, the grandson of legendary preacher and renowned evangelist Billy Graham, has published his first book titled Redeemed Devotions for the Longing Soul. Uh, Will is the third generation of Grahams to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ under the banner of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. Will makes the lessons from each devotional writing relevant to the reader. He weaves personal stories, uh, memories from the Graham family. He's also included special family photos of Billy Graham as well, adding sort of a heartfelt and unique perspective to what people think they know about Billy Graham's life and the family. Um, he writes that as he worked on the book Redeemed, I kept coming back to Psalm 107.9, for He satisfies the longing soul and fills the hungry soul with goodness. He says of the book that I hope that Redeem will honor my grandfather's legacy and in the incredible way that God used him around the world. While well, readers will enjoy content that's centered on the life changing power of a relationship with God, with themes like prayer, sharing your faith, and the willingness to obey God's guidance and divine timing. Will shares his grandfather's passion for preaching God's Word. Uh, He's shared the gospel message across six continents since beginning his evangelistic ministry back in 2004 with youth-oriented one-day events in Canada. He also serves in the uh, the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association as executive director of the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove in um, Asheville, North Carolina. The Cove offers multi-day seminars on a variety of Christian subjects and features nationally recognized speakers. Well, in addition to honoring his grandfather's life of impact, through his uh, devotional. Uh, Will recently attended the opening of the Billy Graham exhibit at the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., that highlights Billy Graham's life, ministry, and legacy. Will also will uh, portray his grandfather in the theatrical release of Unbroken, Path to Redemption, that opened uh, late last year. It chronicles the true story of Olympian and World War II hero Louis um, Zamperini, who survived uh, torture as a prisoner of war only to endure nightmares, alcoholism, and a disintegrating marriage That is until he finally found true hope and peace after accepting Jesus as his Savior in 1949 at a Billy Graham crusade, which, by the way, is depicted by Billy Graham's grandso- great-grandson, Will Graham. Well, he joins us today to talk about redeemed devotions for the longing soul. Welcome. It is such a pleasure to have you with us today.
3: Georgine. Uh, great. Thank you for letting me come on your show today.
1: Now, um, it, this is such a beautiful book because it... Uh, it's heartwarming to those of us who have loved uh, your grandfather for many years and uh, followed his ministry. Many of us came to faith through uh, his ministry, have been influenced uh, largely. And to to read your perspective, um, I think just adds to our uh, our longing for that same kind of relationship and to know God in the way that not only your grandfather did, but your father and now you. So congratulations.
3: Well, well thank you. It's um it, it, I, I guess sometimes it's been a long time coming. Um, I've had a lot of people ask me to write a book, but God never allowed me to write a book. He was, um, you know, when I first was approached, uh, I don't know a number of years ago, about a decade ago, um, people came up and said, "We want you to write a book and we'll publish it." And I said, N- "Well, okay." And I started sitting down and I prayed about it, and God just said, "Well, no, this isn't the right time." And He He said that over multiple years and multiple times, and God just told me not to write and to focus on other things. And then uh, through this movie project that I did with Universal Pictures on, on the movie about Louis Zamperini, um, someone asked me to write a, a book, and I said, no, God doesn't want me to write right now, it, which was true, mm-hmm. but I didn't pray about it. And then all of a sudden, I went home and prayed about it saying, God, when do you want me to write a book? He said, now. And so <laughs> um, he said, the time is now. And so I, I've been working, you might say I've been working on this book for a long, a while, but now I've, I had to get it together and present it to um, HarperCollins or the people at Thomas Nelson at HarperCollins, and um, you know, and I was grateful for their partnership in this book. And um, you know, it's things I've learned. It's not a book about Will Graham. It's not a book about Billy Graham, though. I'm in it. My granddaddy's in it. Mm-hmm. Stories from us, but it's it's really about God, how God changed people's lives, what I've seen God do, and teach me in different parts of the world. Um, you know, the things I've seen, the things I've learned, the things I've watched and exhibited in other people like my grandfather, and my grandmother, for that matter, uh, and through my father, uh, Franklin Graham. And so these are the things I want to pass on to other people, the things I've seen to encourage them to live the Christian life.
1: You know, I really appreciate the way you described seeking the Lord's uh, counsel because it would have been easy, being the grandson of Billy Graham, the son of Franklin Graham, to simply assume that this is the course that I should take. That if an offer to write a book comes, that's what I should do because of the life and legacy of, of your family. But to seek God as an individual and to seek his direction for your life uh, speaks a lot not only about your commitment to him, but about the legacy of your uh, parents and grandparents, how challenging um, has it been for you to find your own way as a follower of Jesus in the shadow of such uh, such great men?
3: Well, it, it, I tell you, when I came to know Christ, that, you know, people you know, a lot of people say, "Well, you're Billy Graham's grandson; you get into heaven for free," <laughs> and uh, you, he's got extra tickets, I'm sure, and um, and and they say it with a smile. I know that they're you know they're yeah. teasing me, yeah. um, but. I had to come to know Christ. As a matter of fact, that's one of the first chapters in my book is how I came to know Christ. I want to share with people how Christ changed Will Graham's life. And it wasn't because I'm Billy Graham's grandson. Mm -hmm. Um, And it was through communion. Uh, Communion did not save me. I want to be real clear on that. Communion didn't save me. But what happened was it was Communion Sunday. I I used to be in children's church. Now they kicked me out and now put me in grown-up church I was too old to be in children's church anymore and I like children's church they had great they had grape juice they had vanilla wafers I loved it, it had a <laughs> snack in there every time and then uh, when I had to go up to grown-up church I looked and lo and behold look they had a whole bunch of loaves of bread up there and they had grape juice too I was like this is the best ever I love grown-up church <laughs> and when the when the communion elements came by I reached out to grab some because I thought it was snacks I mean that's all I thought it was I didn't know it was something special. And my dad told me no, and he didn't hurt my feelings or anything. I didn't really think twice about it. I thought he was afraid I was going to spill the grape juice on the carpet or something. And so I didn't think anything of it, and uh, we went home to, and had lunch at home, and and then uh, dad took me up to my room and explained to me why I couldn't have communion, and that's because I'd never asked Jesus Christ to come into my life. And so it wasn't because I was Billy Graham's grandson that was going to get me to heaven, it's because you know, because of what Jesus did for me. And when I was a little kid, I didn't understand everything in the Bible, but I knew that Jesus, or that God was real, that he sent his son Jesus to die in my place because I was a sinner, and I knew that I was a sinner. I'd done bad things at six years old. I knew I'd done bad things. I lied, I've stolen. Uh, I mean, I was a retro, you know, I was a bad kid. I mean, I was a good kid in in a general sense, but I'd done bad things. And the, the fourth thing I realized is that I want to spend eternity with Jesus, and if I could and the only way I could do that is to ask Jesus Christ to come to my life and to forgive Will Graham for will Graham's sins. and so my father led me to the Lord, and that's how I came to know Christ so growing up in the Graham family, it comes with a lot of blessings. I tell people there's a lot of bad things that come with it too, but the good things outweigh the bad things, and it's I'm grateful to be a grandson of Billy Graham. Mm-hmm. People love Billy Graham. It opens up doors for me. I'm grateful for the name of Billy Graham, and um, and so I'm, I love living in his shadow because it's a wonderful shadow, and I'm grateful for the shadow that he presents. Um, but I'm not called to be merely Billy Graham's grandson, I'm called to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so wherever I go, I want to be obedient to the Lord Jesus Christ, whatever he has me to do. And uh, part of that was writing this book and the rest of it, most of the time it's preaching the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, wherever he sends me.
1: Now, as I mentioned, this is a devotional uh, for the longing soul. The title is Redeemed. Why did you choose this subject? And why do you think the Lord would have us reflect on these things at, at this time through your book?
3: Well, that, that's a wonderful question. You know, uh, I'm not, to be honest. In all honesty, I'm not a very good person who comes up with titles. If you look at all my sermons, they're real boring titles. Uh, they're, they're like, because I, I was a pastor for a long time, so I preached a lot of. I preached in every book of the Bible, and I don't have very good titles on my sermons. Um, I'm just not creative. And so Harper Collins uh, and the people at Thomas Nelson helped me come up with the title, Redeemed. But I wanted to say, and I loved it, because Redeemed speaks of something being restored, to be brought back. And, um, and so I like that title, and that's what I want this book to do, bring us back to the basics, um, to, sh- to, to help us redeem the time that we have left on this earth. And so I like that title, but I feel like it needed more. And then Psalm 107, verse 9, kept popping up when I was writing this book. When I first started writing this book, uh, my assistant, uh, she d- led devotions here at work where I lit, or where I work, and she she quoted this verse, and, I, and it just it hit me good. It was one of those good hits, like man, that is a tremendous verse right there. And I started studying Psalm 107, verse nine, and all of one, 107. On another page, I, the church I was going to, the pastor started a whole series on Psalm 107. And so, when I ended the book, the pastor started preaching on psalm one o seven verse and so, I, so it was kind of like the book ends of writing this book, and I said, "Okay, guys, you're trying to tell me something about <laughs> this book uh or this this verse here, and how it needs to apply to my book and so Harper Collins helped me come up talking about this verse. Uh, devotions for a Longing Soul, there's so many people out in this world that are longing for more in life, and they try to fill it with sex, they try to fill it with drugs, they try to fill it with alcohol, they try to fill it with money, success, and it leaves them empty. And I'm here to tell you that God's going to fill your soul with great things, but he has to do it, and you can't do it. And so that's what this book's kind of about.
1: Now, we're going to continue our conversation, but I do need to take a quick break. Again, we're talking this afternoon with Will Graham. His first book, titled Redeemed Devotions for the Longing Soul, it includes uh, wonderful pictures and stories and uh, everything you would expect in a devotional. We'll talk more about that when we return. Once again, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show.
0: You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ.
1: We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the first ever devotional book written by Billy Graham's grandson, William Graham or will, uh, following in his grandfather's footsteps, preaching stadium crusades around the world. In Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul, he shares intimate stories of growing up in his grandfather's shadow, as well as anecdotes from his travels that speak to the common struggles of the Christian life. But as he mentioned in our first segment, this isn't a book about him or his grandfather. This is a book about Jesus. It was released in October to commemorate uh, what would have been Billy Graham's 100th birthday. Each entry in the book includes a Bible verse, a short prayer, and oftentimes a photo, sometimes of Will and his grandfather and other family members that illustrate each story. He serves currently as a full-time evangelist and executive director of the Billy Graham Training Center at The Cove in Asheville, North Carolina, where he lives with his wife and three children. The book uh, will encourage you while uh, providing a glimpse into the personal faith of the Graham family, whose passion has been shared Um, through the gospel for many, many years. Well, let's talk about the book itself. Each chapter reflects, uh, obviously, a different uh, focus. There are 50 chapters. You begin with communion. Uh, Describe for our listeners who don't have a copy in front of them how the book is structured and how you um, see this as a devotional.
3: Well, I appreciate that. And, uh, you know, each chapter, first and foremost, starts off with Scripture. Mm-hmm. Uh, I believe that scripture is the most important thing. My devotional book is not the most important thing in this world. It's God's word that's the most important thing. Uh, I'm a preacher of the gospel, and so I want the gospel to be first and foremost on every chapter. And so I start with a verse, and then uh, I want to talk about what how I've seen that verse played out in my life. Um the ways I've seen it played out. I think almost all my devotions come from, as I say almost all of I them. Mean, I know for one, that was. it was before I was born. Well, there's a couple that were before I was born, but these are some of my grandfather's stories um, that he's taught me and, and told me about. So these are things I've learned from my grandfather, from my dad, from other people in life, things that I've seen on my own when I've been preaching the Word. And so I kind of share a story and how that plays out and then i also give a i always have a quote of my granddaddy that talks about the subject that we're talking about in each chapter and then i close with a, just a small prayer is a small prayer to help encourage the believer to to talk to god and hand their problems over to god and allow god to work this message into their heart and so that's kind of the structure it's 50 chapters but they're like two or three pages pages mm-hmm. so it's these aren't real long chapters and uh it's great. This is not a substitute for reading God's Word. <laughs> Make sure that you read God's Word. I hope this just will come alongside of you and encourage you as well as you read God's Word.
1: Well, and it's a wonderful thing that during the course of the day, you might want to read it in the middle of the day or just before you lay your head on the pillow. But it's a wonderful reminder of uh, of the reliability of God's word, how he works in the lives of his people. And then uh, to see some of these uh, chapters in the context of your family. And we've witnessed the God's faithfulness uh, being worked out in your family. It's just a wonderfully encouraging um, uh, Devotional. Now, you also include a prayer with each chapter, which I find is a wonderful way to end a devotion.
3: Well, I do, and you know, one thing that my grandfather taught me in life. I went to go talk to him about one day, and this is the: I was making a very important decision about leaving the local church, which I was a pastor of, to come and help the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. And to be honest, I didn't want to do it, but I knew God was calling me to do it. I love being a pastor, and I didn't want to leave my church. But God told me to do it, and so I went to go talk to my granddaddy about it. And he told me, he said, Will, he said, we would love and be honored uh, to have you come and work at the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. It would be wonderful to have my grandson here um, and helping us. He said, that's what the Lord has uh, uh, has you to do. He said, but I, I want to tell you about two things I regret in life. One is, he said, um, I wish I knew the Bible as good as your grandmother. Hmm. And, um, he said, uh, your grandmother knew the Bible so well. I wish I knew it as well as she did. And, um, and then the second thing was, um, he said, well, I wish I'd spent less time preaching, more time reading God's word, and more time praying. I wish I'd spent more time on my knees. We could accomplish so much more and see more people come to know Christ if I had preached less, studied more, and prayed more. And um, that spoke volumes to me. And so that's why with at the end of each of these chapters, I want to make sure that we spend time in prayer. There's a small prayer, short prayer, and it's just, it's just basically us, the reader, talking to the Lord and saying, Lord, these are the things I'm struggling with in my life. These are the things I need help with. Lord, show me how to do it. And uh, allow the Lord to keep molding us and making us into his image. And that's what the goal of the Christian life is to be, is to reflect Christ. And um, I hope this book will... Enable someone to look more like Jesus at the end of the 50 days. Yeah,
1: yeah. You know, that's such extraordinary advice that your grandfather gave to you. And for those of us who know him as the evangelist, uh, to hear him express any regret at all when you consider the the millions of people whose lives were impacted by the clear presentation of the gospel in the ministry of the Billy Graham Evangelistic Association. To hear his advice to his grandson, how did that impact the course of your ministry and, and how you move forward in seeking God's will and how you spend your time in ministry?
3: Well, I appreciate um I wish, I'm wish i not sure if there's ever going to be a person alive that says, oh, yeah, I've sp- I spent enough time in prayer. Yeah. <laughs> I'm not sure if we'll ever get to that point. And cause, uh, to be honest, I saw my granddaddy, I, I kind of joke and say I saw him doing three things. Um, he was always reading his Bible, he was always praying, and he was always watching Larry King live. <laughs> <laughs> so he loved watching Larry King live because he loved learning about other people, and Larry King was one of the best at just... Talking to people and and where people famous people would come on the show and he would get to interview them and you get to know this famous person and uh, my granddad loved watching Larry King because uh, and he used what he learned on Larry King so that when he met this individual in real life sometime down the road he already had a basis for a conversation because he learned it from Larry King's show and so and I say all this because I wish I'd spent do I spend enough time in prayer no do i spend enough time in god's word no and i'm not sure wherever the right amount is either and um i just want to be striving that i keep praying i spend more time on my knees and listen to my granddaddy do less preaching more praying and more studying god's word and um in that part i'm not sure i don't know what that he didn't tell me that's uh, 30 minutes or an (laughs) hour I think that's the part that the Holy Spirit's got to lead. Yeah, here, yeah, it's party.
1: a, a so, worthy uh, aspiration. A <laughs> well, let's talk exactly. about just the, the the idea of devotion. Uh, we all have very busy lives. There are things that must be done in order for us to to um, provide for our families and so on. Uh, and yet, we are are encouraged in Scripture to spend time away in God's Word, to spend time in devotion. Um this talked a little bit about why it's important for us to designate um, intentionally times in which we just step away, maybe for mere moments, but to step away and spend time in God's presence uh, in a quiet time, uh, reading through a devotion like Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul. Why is that so important?
3: Well, it, it, something I learned from my great-grandfather. Now, this is not Billy Graham. This would be Billy Graham's father-in-law, Ruth Graham's father, my great-grandfather, who's a missionary in China. And he ran a medical hospital over there, and as a doctor, as a, and then a husband and a father. I mean, he had a lot of responsibilities over there. And he would look at his schedule for the next day, and he said, Oh, my goodness, look at all these surgeries i got to do, all these things. He said, I'm going to need to spend more time in prayer. Mm. And oftentimes when we get busy, we do less prayer. And something my great-grandfather taught me is that we need to spend more time in prayer when we're busy and give it up to the Lord. And... um You know, and I think it's very important that every Christian spend time with the Lord. Listen, I know we spend a lot of time in cars, driving to work, been stuck in traffic, picking up kids. Man, that's when we can be pouring out our heart to the Lord and uh, praying to the Lord, giving that day to Him. It's a great way to keep our mind focused on God and tell us, Lord, you know, help us be slow to speak. (laughs) You know, I think our mouth gets us in more trouble than anything else. And say, Lord, i got some big decisions i got to make. Help me to speak correctly and to be and to speak positively toward other people uh, so i can be a positive person around others and help me to be a witness for you and that comes through prayer and uh, when we just talk to god and we spend so much time in the car we'll listen to radio and listen they're going to be listening to your show there's nothing wrong with that <laughs> but we need to spend time in uh, with god and uh, that's real important and um and, I, and i'm not a perfect example of it i'm not a perfect example but We need to strive to talk more with God and listen to God. And God speaks through his word. And so I want to encourage people to be studying God's word through not just praying, but studying God's word. Um, A devotional book is a good thing, but it's not a substitute for the word of God. And we should be spending time in God's word. That's why I've included God's word in this so we can spend a little time in God's word. But I would encourage your readers or your listeners to be to be reading God's word on their own apart from my book. But this book's a great supplement to come along and to encourage you a little bit further in your study as well. Yeah.
1: Once again, the book is titled The Devotional, Redeemed, Devotions for the Longing Soul. Will Graham, it's been such a pleasure to uh, to talk with you and congratulations on your first book.
3: Well, thank you, Georgine. Great talking with you. It's been a pleasure.
1: Thank you so much. By the way, the book is published by Thomas Nelson and is currently available in bookstores. What a tremendous legacy um, that he can look back uh, on, uh, thinking of his uh, great grandparents and his grandparents, his father, and so on, but each one of us has the same capacity to leave a legacy of faith and faithfulness, so I think you 'll find encouragement in redeemed devotions for the longing soul you 're listening to the georgine rice show we 'll be back in a moment to wrap things up
0: you 're listening to the Georgine Rice show podcast is aired on ninety three point nine kpdq
1: We're back. You're listening to the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. As I mentioned yesterday, Mission Connection now has the audio tapes, dated myself, now has the audio available from Mission Connection 2019. You can go to the website and uh, pick the workshop that you didn't get the opportunity to attend or the one you really enjoyed and would like to hear again or share with someone else, and you can find out more about that. The theme this year, as you might recall, was Worth It? It's a question with a question mark um really encouraging us to think about the cost of discipleship we're not talking about earning your salvation but the cost that comes along with uh, the decision to be faithful to Christ. And if we, uh, if we are, Jesus himself said, we will know tribulation. Well, there are some who have known it in uh, ways that we can't even imagine. One uh, such individual was Asia Bibi. Now, it's a name that's familiar to many of you because you've been praying, but others perhaps less so. She was a Pakistani Christian, and her fate um, has been a matter of great concern for quite some time. Well, today the Supreme Court of Pakistan upheld its earlier decision to acquit her, and that means she's finally free to leave Pakistan. And when she was acquitted some, uh, some time ago, they were not um, allowing her to leave the country. She was still very much in danger. Well, in one of the most high-profile Christian persecution cases in the past decade, she spent eight years in prison, convicted of blasphemy against the Prophet Muhammad, which is a crime punishable by death in the Islamic Republic, until the Supreme Court rejected her conviction back in uh, October. Last. Well, the acquittal stated that while blasphemy is a serious offense, truth tainted with falsehood could not be the basis for her conviction in a lower uh, trial court. A review petition was filed the next day by a local cleric who uh, levied the allegations against Bibi in the first place, Muhammad Salam, demanding the three judges look at the uh, case again and challenging her freedom. Well based on merit, this petition is dismissed. That's a quote from the Chief Justice who heard the case uh, in Islamabad today, along with and that's of course local time, along with uh, Justice, Justices uh, who are also on that panel, uh, one of the uh, attorneys, a Christian and chairman of the Minorities Alliance Pakistan, attended the hearing and told Christianity Today that the judges observed that Salam's lawyer uh, failed to present any new facts or identify any mistake in the earlier decision in Bibi's favor. Um, they uh, made it a case of religious sentiment while the judges required their counsel present any legal um, uh evidence in the judgment. Well, the verdict was given on the basis of testimonies. The chief justice asked, um, does Islam say that one should be punished even if they are found not guilty? Well, the lawyer admitted that burden of proof was on the petitioner. Uh, So the uh, petitioner was asked if he disagreed with the basic legal rule of jurisprudence. Well, in their acquittal, the judges ruled that the Muslim cleric accusing Bibi of blasphemy had not witnessed the incident himself. Instead, he had based his legal complaint on the testimony of two sisters and all gave inconsistent statements that cast a shadow of doubt on the prosecution's version of the facts. Well, the alleged blasphemy occurred during a dispute between Bibi and the women who worked alongside, uh, alongside her while picking fruit in their village. Well, the judges also noted that the alleged extrajudicial confection uh, was not voluntary, but rather resulted out of coercion and undue pressure. So she did not voluntarily um, uh, say that she was, in fact, guilty as charged. Well, blasphemy is a serious offense, wrote. Kosha in the October acquittal, but the insult of the appellant's religion and religious sensibilities by the complainant party and then mixing truth with falsehood in the name of the holy prophet Muhammad, peace be upon him, I'm reading the quote, was also not short of being blasphemous. Uh, it is ironical, he went on to say, that in the Arabic language, the appellate's name, Asia, means sinful, but in the circumstances of the present case, she appears to be a person, in the words of Shakespeare's King Lear, more sinned against... Than sinning. While well, the ruling also cited a supposed 7th century covenant that Islam's founder made with Christians. Christianity Today had reported whether experts think such ancient treatises were, in uh, fact, the basis for modern peace between Muslims and Christians. Well, the case was particularly contentious in Pakistan, among the worst ranked countries in the world for Christian persecution. Islam is the state religion, uh, and Christians um, make up less than 2% of the population. Well, during the hearing uh, today, the nation's capital had tight security. Uh, was on high alert. However, no major protests were expected, like those in the wake of her acquittal last fall. Well, after the October 31st decision, again, that's the first acquittal, um, nationwide protests, including threats to judges, army generals, paralyzed the country, and Bibi was moved to an undisclosed location. But now Pakistan has compa- was comparatively uh, calm. The two main uh, clerics responsible for inciting mobs uh, were arrested in November over charges of sedition and terrorism, so that certainly helped. Well, more than 50 people who were charged with blasphemy in Pakistan have been murdered and attacks by vigilantes over the years, some beaten in the streets, some burned to death. And again, these are Christians simply living out their faith and perhaps being vocal about it. Even after her acquittal, Bibi was uh, has remained under tight security to avoid violence at the hands of those who oppose the verdict. The Islamabad Declaration goes on to state that it is the responsibility of the government to ensure protection of life and property of non-Muslims living in Pakistan. Thus far, they have not done well. The Bibi case is an exception. Bibi was the first Christian woman in the country to be convicted of blasphemy and to have her case go all the way to the Supreme Court. Uh, Her lawyer, who fled the country amid the protests over her acquittal, appeared in court and contested the petition to overturn her release. Along with uh, religious freedom advocates, Christians around the world have prayed for her protection and celebrated today's decision. I know many of you are among them. We're delighted that Asia Bibi's acquittal has been upheld by the Supreme Court of Pakistan. Um, As uh, release international, uh, Open Doors UK continue to call for her safe removal from the country and for protection for the Christian minority there. Uh, The persecution of Christians must stop everywhere around the world, tweeted Senator Rand Paul today. It is time for Pakistan to let Asia Bibi go. The Supreme Court of Pakistan has now reaffirmed her innocence. Her safety is paramount. Two of her uh, daughters were recently granted citizenship by Canada. Observers now expect Bibi and her husband to fly to Canada after remaining in uh, Pakistan for the uh, recent hearing at the uh, Christianity Today blog. Billy Graham Center executive director Ed Stetzer advocated, along with uh, John Stone Street, uh, that President Donald Trump grant asylum to Bibi, and we'll certainly follow the story to its uh, final conclusion. But. This uh, one example of a Christian persecuted for her faith, um, she was uh, accused uh, falsely in this case as well, but the fact that she was a Christian meant that she spent eight years in prison and only today was had her uh, acquittal upheld. So praise God for that. Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Sarah B. Smith, the uh, author of Piecing Together Lives Shattered by Early Onset Alzheimer's. On Thursday, we'll talk with Kent Anand, his book, You Welcomed Me, Loving Refugees and Immigrants Because God Loved Us First. So I hope you'll be with us for both of those great interviews. I want to thank James Blinn for producing, Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, and thank you for making The Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Have a great night.
0: Thanks for listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook.